0: So far, Paul has introduced himself to the Romans. He had never been to Rome before, really wanted to go, intended to get there, At this point in his ministry, he was ending his third missionary journey going down to Jerusalem, and so he sends this letter ahead of time to tell them, next time I come around, I want to go to Spain, I really would like to meet y'all first. And so he sends them this letter for a number of reasons, but one of them is to introduce himself. He also expresses how grateful he is that there is a church in Rome. That was a big deal at the time, and he lets them know that I would have come to you sooner, but... I have to preach the gospel everywhere. And now that there's already a church in Rome, as much as I love you, I want to go somewhere where there's no church, where there's been no established church. And so that's what he said so far. And the last thing he mentioned was, I'm eager to preach the gospel. And verses 16 and 17 make up a a kind of thesis statement for the book of Romans. Remember that when you were in school and you were writing your papers? Every paper needs a good thesis statement to let you know what it's about. And this seems to be the the thesis statement for the book of Romans. And I've said already, Romans is very long. So the idea that there is only one theme to the book of Romans, I think is a little simplistic. I, I think there's so much that Paul's going to get into. And it's so varied that it, it's tough to say this is what it's all about. You know, justification by faith. That's what the whole book of Romans is about. Well, yeah, but... Chapters 9, 10, and 11 aren't really about that. Chapters 12 through 15, that's like half the book. So it's, it's tough to nail down. And that's, that's just something that helps us understand it a little better. But I think in these verses, this is a pivot. He's pivoting from the introduction to what you call the body of the letter. And then in verse 18, it truly begins with the main arguments and points Paul wants to make. And I think if you had to give one theme to the book of Romans, the gospel is not a bad place to start. And that's a pretty broad topic, but Romans is a pretty broad book. He's going to look at it from every angle. It's like lifting up a fine diamond and examining all the different facets and all the different sides of it. And he says he's not ashamed of the gospel. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross, his subsequent resurrection, his ascension, that constitutes the pivot point of history, doesn't it? We even mark our years based on Jesus, don't we? That everything that happened before Jesus came and everything that happened after Jesus came is a very clear division. Even the world acknowledges that, although they want to change it from BC to BCE because they don't want to acknowledge Christ. But it's like, well, what else happened at that time in history that we're using? It changed everything. The tide was going in and the tide started going out that this man, Jesus, who died for our sins and rose from the dead and brought us salvation with this incredible good news, the world was never the same after that. And the title that I'm, I'm leaning into today is like what a big top circus master would say. This is the moment you've all been waiting for. Isn't that what Jesus was? All of human history, this is the moment you've all been waiting for. And even today... People looking for meaning, for purpose, for something to fight for. And when they meet Jesus, that's the moment they've all been waiting for. And that's why we can't be ashamed, as Paul is going to say, but instead we should be reveling and delighting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's read these again and then we'll back up and we'll just go one phrase at a time to make sure we really grasp every piece of this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Great little section there. Well, He begins, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. He opens with this word for which looks backwards, doesn't it? it? It can mean therefore. This is the Greek word gar, and it's used in these verses three different times. And Paul has a tendency to do this, this, and because of this, this, and because of this, that. And the reason why for that is this, and his sentences just stack on top of one another. But if you look at the last thing he said was, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. So you might ask, why? Why? Why are you eager to preach the gospel? Why are you eager to come to the capital of the world, proclaim a new message from parts unknown, to stand beside this church that has been growing out of the slums and out of the poverty of Rome? Why would you be eager to come and do that? Because he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. To be ashamed of something is not something that we're too keen on. These days. No one should ever be made to feel ashamed of anything we believe, although we we do it, we just call it something else, don't we? But the problem, or not the problem, the challenge that the gospel faced early on is that everybody thought the gospel was something shameful. The Jews thought that the message of Jesus Christ was a shameful one because he's supposed to be our Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one but he came and he died on a cross and does not the law say that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree and you want us to go and follow after this nobody who died at the hands of Rome and the and the Jewish leaders as well because what did the Jews wanted Jesus to do he was supposed to complete their revolution wasn't he he's finally here we're gonna get Rome out of Israel finally we're gonna have our own land we're gonna have our own kingdom everybody will bow to us and Jesus didn't seem too concerned about that when he was on the earth, was he? He kept on trying to redirect their attention heavenward, and they didn't much care for that. So the idea of proclaiming a Messiah, which was an Old Testament term, that means anointed one, like David had been anointed as king, to say that our anointed one is king of nothing, then that was a shameful thing for them. This is our king, the one who's going to lead us out? He died on a cross. He's supposed to defeat Rome, but Rome defeated him. It was shameful. For them. It was also shameful for the Romans, because you all know about Rome. Rome was all about its glory, wasn't it? The glory of Rome, the glory of the empire, the might of our armies and our legions, the wisdom of our philosophers, the beauty of our culture and our art. And here comes this message of this man who died on the cross. The cross is something we use to keep the other nations in line, And you're going to tell us that we're going to bow down and worship one of these? That we're going to stop worshiping the gods of our fathers? We're going to stop bowing to Caesar and rallying around the legions? That's a shameful thing, to stop being a good Roman. It's like you're asking me to stop being a man, to start worshiping this man, Jesus Christ. It was a shameful thing. And as we've demonstrated in our earlier studies, the church in Rome at this point was confined to the slums where they used to tan the hides. Do you remember this? And it would smell, and no one wanted to go there, and it was a fire hazard because of the way it was all built. It was a shameful thing. The Jews had been kicked out of Rome multiple times. The last time was a dispute over Jesus. The Jews, the synagogues, kicked Christians out. It was routine. So it was a shameful thing in most people's eyes to be a Christian. Paul explains it very similarly in 1 Corinthians 1. 22 through 24, he he puts it, The Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Jews wanted to see a demonstration of God's power. The Greeks wanted to hear sophisticated, lofty argumentation and wisdom. And they came with Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and nobody wanted it, but Paul knew. And we've got to understand this, guys. The world is never going to be on board with the whole gospel. Can I just liberate you from that now? If you've been waiting and hoping for the world to finally come around, waiting for the government to finally put Jesus where He belongs, waiting for your neighbors to find... It's not going to happen until Jesus returns. Jesus told us that he didn't lie to us, that they hated me, they're going to hate you. No servant is greater than his master, and they nailed me to a cross. What do you think they're going to do to you? Now, the world loves a version of the gospel, don't they? If you, if you talk about it just like this, then we'd be happy to run with it. But if you're going to give us the whole thing, I don't think we can take that. In fact, those descriptions of the Jews and the Romans sound an awful lot like us today, didn't it? There are some people that want the gospel to be all about the revolution, all about tearing down the structure, all about liberating people. There there are folks that talk now that the church needs to move away from savior narratives, which is like, isn't that all that we have is a savior narrative? We've got to reinterpret the gospel for this new enlightened postmodern age. And in so doing, strip all the guts out of the middle of the gospel. Like, yeah, get those left-wingers, Tyler. Well, hold on, here comes your turn. (laughs) The right wing wants to hold on to the gospel too, but what do they want? Like Rome, it's a cultural thing. It's what made us strong. The Bible and the church and the good news of Jesus, this is what built this country, and I love this country, so let's get back to that. Now, of course, we know we can't think about it the way we always have. We know we've got to reinterpret some things. We've learned that we were wrong about a lot of this. So what, what's new? I still like the book, but I just can't read. The, the world never just wants the straight gospel. And that's not unique to the US of A. That's everybody. You take it to Nepal, they don't want the straight gospel. They want a gospel that talks about the same things they talk about. You take it to any culture around the world, even historically, they want a relevant gospel. That basically says the same things we say. But we bring a message of death to self, submission to Christ, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. No, we can't do it. We've got to fight. To preach the gospel is to invite the shame of the world. Are you ready for that? Because that's what you signed up for. To invite the shame of the world. But you can't back down. Because you know what Jesus said in Mark 8.38? Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and ashamed of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I can't wait to hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus said, I'm going to show up and be ashamed of some of y'all. Is this one yours? Yeah. Yeah, I, don't have, I have no excuse, but yeah, they are. I want to hear Jesus say that about you. He says, if you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. Jesus wouldn't say that. He did say that. The wicked world needs help. We cannot let them make us ashamed. That's what Jesus said, right? If you're ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation. So we shouldn't take their critiques at all, really. If the world is full of sin, this is a thing that I've, I've noticed that the church has a bad habit of doing. Some poll will come out. Some t- statistics, some article will be written about, here's what's wrong with the church today. And the person that wrote it doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe the Bible, doesn't believe any of the moral things the Bible teaches, and quite frankly wishes we all would go away. And we go, oh, they don't like us. We've got to make some changes. And then all the conferences are about how we've got to make the world like This is an adulterous and wicked generation. Well, we can't say that because then they won't like it. Well, they need to hear it. So we can't be ashamed because they need our help. They're the ones that we're there to save. And secondly, hasn't Christ earned our love? He wasn't ashamed of you when he died on that cross for you. So I'm willing to give up everything for them. There's nothing to be ashamed of, which is why Paul, knowing what he's got in the gospel, but also knowing the culture all around him, steps up and says, I'll preach it in Rome because I'm not ashamed of it. And when you've been surrounded by people who are trying to make you ashamed of the gospel... And you hear somebody stand up and boldly say, I'm not ashamed. It fills your heart with a little bit of fire, doesn't it? Like, yes, yes. It's like when you finally hear some pastor or theologian on TV give a good answer to one of the questions they're asked, right? He doesn't dot, he just leans into it and like, oh, thank you. Somebody said it. And this is what he's trying to do for these Romans, too, is I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I know what Rome says. I know what the synagogues are saying. But I'm not ashamed. So, before we dive into what the gospel is and why we can't be ashamed, we've just got to know that no one is going to like Jesus' gospel because it is the most personal thing. It's the thing that is most aggressively trying to tell people you're wrong in a world that doesn't want to be told it's wrong. And so the world's not going to like it. But we can't be ashamed. We can't cater it to anybody's agenda or to their own plan or their own priorities. I want you to talk about Jesus, but I want you to talk about it so that all of my goals are accomplished. Would Jesus ever do that? Now, Jesus is the kind of guy that would show up and do the exact opposite, wasn't he? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's the big question of the day, Jesus. You can't dodge it. Well, how about you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and you give to God what belongs to God? He's avoiding the big issues. No, no, no. You don't know what the big issues are. Jesus knew what they were. And because this gospel is nothing to be ashamed of, it's exactly what the world has been waiting for. This is what the world needs. They don't know it's what they need, but we do. And that's why we can't be ashamed of it and be embarrassed to talk about it. Oh, please don't know. Don't ask me because then I'm going to have to tell you. I'm not going to lie. We are the bearers of good news. For what does he say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel for... We have another four. we have another gar in Greek, another explanatory word. Why are you not ashamed of the gospel, Paul? For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So why are you not ashamed? Well, he says, well, don't you know what the gospel is? Now that word gospel is euangelion. In Greek. It's where we get the word evangelism. You is a positive term. It means good, right? So you, and then angelion kind of sounds like angel, doesn't it? An angel is a messenger. So angelion means message, good message, or good news, right? I'm not ashamed of this good news because it is the power of God for salvation. Very similar to what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Remember? The Jews seek. A miracle signs and the Greeks want wisdom and they want arguments as all I've got is the power of God Paul very clearly is not afraid to say this is what the world thinks about the gospel and they're wrong we've got to be willing to say that every now and then you know not being a jerk online like everybody's wrong and you're all going to hell yeah very winsome just like Jesus was right but we've got to be able to know no no you're wrong that's not what the gospel is. That's not what Jesus stood for. That's not what the Bible says. Everybody thinks they know what the Bible says. Have you noticed that? Everybody, th- even if they've obviously never read it before, and they will tell this is what the church should be, and it's like, have you been to church? Because I don't think you know. The world is wrong. It's the power of God at work unto salvation. This is the first use of that word salvation in the book of Romans. We're going to see it a lot. It's soteria. That's where we get the word soteriology from, which is the study of the doctrine of salvation. And there are those that want to try to minimize that word. Yeah, salvation, it can mean salvation from anything. You know, salvation from sickness, salvation from poverty, salvation from this or that. Okay, but in this context, very specifically, we're talking about eternal salvation. Deliverance from judgment on the final day. It's the power of God for salvation that when you die... It's going to work out for you. The death and the resurrection of Jesus, which are the gospel, that's the means of deliverance. And and the whole book is going to be explaining all this in great detail. That God has stretched out with his power to save us. And the world constantly rails at God, doesn't it? This is Bertrand Russell's whole thing, and and other atheists like uh, Richard Dawkins have piggybacked on this. Well, if God is real, why doesn't he show himself? If this world is so bad and all these terrible things are happening, why doesn't God do something about it? Well, the short answer is that he did. God did do something. He stepped in. He intervened. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that's really the cry of every person, every heart that sees how death and hell hang over the world like a thundercloud. Everything is is tainted by the fact that this life is going to end, and that I can have lots of fun and make lots of money, but at the end it means nothing. So what's the point of, of getting up in the morning anyway? Say, so if God is real, why doesn't God do something about how wretched all this stuff is? Well, he did. Isn't that good news? I've got good news for you. That God has stretched down by his power to bring salvation to everyone who believes. Now, how do we appropriate that salvation? So how, how, do I, how do I get it? Right? What do I do? This is what they said whenever they preached the gospel in the book of Acts. It's remarkable because in Acts, when they preached the gospel... They leaned into the, you are destined for judgment part. So much so that at the end, they were on their knees saying, sirs, what must we do? What do we got to do to be saved? We killed Jesus. We killed the Messiah. What do we do? He says, believe, repent and believe on Jesus Christ. It's not something that you can do. You don't have to complete your salvation. It's only something you can receive. You can either say no or you can say yes. You can believe it or you cannot believe it. And that's what makes the difference. Now, why does that matter? We'll get into this more as we go. But it's a matter of choosing who is going to represent you at the final judgment. You've got a court date coming up. You have the right to an attorney. And his name is Jesus Christ. Or you can represent yourself. I'd rather Jesus handle that for me. And you can't say, well, let's see, isn't this a great lawyer that I was able to get? No. He was standing there right there and said, would you like me to do this for you? Belief. And he says that there's no partiality to everyone who believes. And nobody ever really likes this part. In fact, one of the first heretics was a guy named Marcion. And in this passage here where he says for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, in his version, he scratched out that word first. Because he didn't like Jews very much. He also cut out major sections of the book and he didn't like half of Paul's letters and he didn't like most of the gospels because they were just too Jewish for him. But the fact remains that it says that to the Jew first. They're God's chosen people. This is going to remain a theme throughout the book, right? That it begins with the Jews, but it is expanded to all the nations. How wonderful is that? Why should we believe that the Jewish Messiah and the God they serve can have any help for me? I'm not Jewish. I'm not a Hebrew. I'm not a child of Abraham. Or Isaac or Jacob because that Messiah has stretched that gospel to the whole world isn't this exactly what the world has demanded we need something that works for everybody and the honest person says yes it's great that you've got your little religion but that doesn't say anything to me that's your cultural thing but how does that affect me I need God the real God wherever he is to step in and that's exactly what God has done intervention of God on a global scale not just your experience not just this tribe's experience, even if it is the nation of Israel. Well, you could try our God. It's like, I don't want to just try a God. I want to know what's real, what's true. And then the world says all kinds of glib things like, it doesn't matter if it's true. As long as it helps. That, that makes me so angry when I hear that. Just like on a personal level. It's like, don't insult me. I want to know what's real. I, I, if it makes me feel better, but it doesn't matter if it's true. That, that's drugs. That's being drunk. That's feeling better, but nothing's changed. Well, that's all religion is. I don't think so. Paul said, If all I have in, in Christ Jesus is hope for this life, I'm the most pathetic person you've ever met in your life. 1 Corinthians 15, he said that. This is why Paul's not ashamed, because who would be ashamed of that? If Paul knew that God had intervened by his power to save the world and all it took to be saved was faith and that no people group was excluded from that, what does he have to be ashamed of? Same thing for you and me, right? Why should we be ashamed? Oh, you believe in Jesus? Oh, yes, I do. Isn't that that old-fashioned, bigoted thing that oppressed all those people? No, 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 you've got it all wrong. It's the power of God reached down to save everybody who believes. And then they want to throw all this baggage and extra stuff at you and say, well, this and this and this. You go, but none of that has anything to do with Christ. I'm only here to talk about Jesus. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verse 8, and then I'll also read verse 12. He said, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Uh Uh-oh. The opposite of being ashamed of the gospel is suffering for the gospel. That's less exciting, isn't it? But I don't want to suffer. I thought this whole thing was about how to not suffer for the gospel. I don't have that answer because Jesus suffered for the gospel. The apostles suffered for the gospel. The church fathers and the martyrs and everyone who's gone before has suffered for the gospel. Paul says in verse 12, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul's like, "You, you can't be ashamed, Timothy. You've got to stand up. You've got to be willing to suffer. I'm not ashamed because I know what this is. And if you know what this is, then we can't be ashamed of it. Now, The world often misunderstands that the gospel is God's sovereign, loving intervention. And often that has been our fault because in a previous generation, we tried to tailor the gospel to something they would like. Then culture changed. The world doesn't like this culture anymore, and our gospel has been tied to that culture. So they attack that, which is why we've always got to have a, a detached attitude, that the gospel is above all that. It's above the, the ebbs and flows of society and nations. It's why we can take the missionaries around the world, and they can preach the same message, If you can't take your gospel and drop it in somewhere else in space or time and make it effective and make it line up with scripture, then something's wrong. So all those that are scrambling, how do we preach the gospel to this generation? Well, ideally the same way you preach it to the last one. (laughs) I'll go on a little rabbit trail. I've been reading a book here where this guy is launching an attack against modernist Christianity. He says the church hitched its wagon to the modernist philosophy of the 20th century. He says, we've got to get rid of that because now we know blank, blank, blank. And the irony is, he's not saying, let's detach it from modernist society and remain detached. He says, now let's hook it up to the postmodern society. And like, you're doing the same exact thing to the next wave. And then that wave's going to be over and you're going to be left out to dry. We cannot do that. We've got to remain on the fact that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We've got to be clear. You are a herald of the only power that can save anybody. So stand on that and nothing else. Are there going to be other things you believe in and maybe even other causes you want to fight for? Sure. But there's got to be a substantive difference between those two things. I'm willing to discuss and evaluate and compromise on all kinds of things. Not on this, though. This is what drives my life. This is what drives the way I raise my kids, the way I handle my marriage, the way I spend my money, the way I spend my time. Everything about my life comes from this, even to the point where it causes me to suffer. There's a lot of things I care about. I'm not willing to suffer for them, though. There are some people, it seems like they're willing to suffer for some really silly things. Have you noticed that? So let's stand on the one thing that we know we need not be ashamed of. Verse 17, he says, for... Another gar, another explanatory word. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Why does the gospel message have such power? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? How is that possible? He says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And this is going to take some unpacking because that phrase sounds really good and religious. But when you sit and think about it, what does that mean? The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, and that's why it has so much power. Misunderstandings of that have led to the church to some very dark places. So let's look at this. The word righteousness. In Greek, this is the word dikaiosune, and that is a key word. If there's one word you've got to know in Romans, it's this one. The words that come from that family, meaning the verb form, the adjective form, the noun form, occur 64 times in the book of Romans compared to 49 times in all the other letters of Paul. So more than twice of the times where Paul talks about righteousness are found in the book of Romans. Now, we know what the word righteousness means. It means basically fairness or justice. We hear righteousness, and in English, that expands to encompass pretty much any attribute of holiness, right, of being good, of being well-behaved, of being moral, Well, this word here is a little more specific, describing specifically justice, which is why in some of the older translations, they will translate it justice, or they'll translate righteous as just. It's it's one of those things where there's not a one-for-one translation here. But it basically means fairness or justice. It's a moral quality. It's the quality of being moral, specifically that of being fair and equitable. The Old Testament word is the word tzedakah. It's where we get words like Sadiq. Maybe you've met somebody named Sadiq or something related to it. The Arabic word is very similar to the Hebrew word and it means righteous. It means justice or fairness. And both Old and New Testaments use that word very broadly and very creatively. So to try and come up with that one meaning is probably not the best way to go about it. We want to look at how it is defined contextually and that will help us understand this verse. So I came up with four uh, as far as I could understand, four ways that righteousness is used in the Bible. And that will sh- shed some light on what Paul is saying here. Number one, it's just used in a moral sense, to say that God is righteous, or that God is just. It's, it's just an attribute. The righteousness of God, the justice, the decaiosune of God, means that God is a righteous, just person. Number two, it'll say that God will show his righteousness or he will activate his righteousness or reveal his righteousness it's used actively and positively there to say that god is going to be fair to his people the psalms are full of this you will reveal your righteousness meaning all these people that are coming at me unfairly you're going to come and fight for me and show your fairness by getting them because they're not being fair but you are fair so therefore, it's also used negatively in describing the judgment of God against Israel or any other nation. It says, I will bring my righteousness with me. And that's a terrible thing because we are not righteous. So God revealing his righteousness means that we are being judged. And even that word that we use in English, judge, is a neutral word, right? It, you, if you're in the right, you want to go to the judge. Yeah, go ahead and judge me because I know I did the right thing. But we, we think of it negatively when we say we're being judged as in we're being condemned. And number four it also is used to describe something that God gives to people. I will give you my righteousness. I will impute to you. It will be accounted to you for righteousness. So there's a moral sense. There's a positive active sense. There's a negative active sense. And there's a gift that God gives people his righteousness. This is what I mean by saying you can't just read the word righteous and know exactly what it means. Right, because in one context, righteousness of God is a scary thing, because He's coming for you with that righteousness. Another context, it's a very positive, reassuring thing, because God is coming to protect me with His righteousness, and so on. I think the best passage in, in the Bible that parallels this one here is Psalm 98. You might want to turn there, because I'm going to read a couple verses from there. And it could very well be that Paul had this passage in mind when he penned verses 16 and 17. Psalm 98. I'm going to read verses 2 and 3, and then verse 9. It's a celebratory psalm. They're celebrating a victory or something that God has done for them. So I'm going to read verses 2 and 3, and then verse 9. It says, The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And then in verse 9, He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Do you see all these related words? God has revealed His righteousness by delivering us and He's going to judge the world in that same righteousness. I hope you're starting to get a sense of what this word means to Paul and to the people he's writing to. So it's God's cosmic fairness. It can be a... Passive quality and active quality, even something he gives to people. We know what the word means. But then he says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The word is apokalupto. It's where we get the word apocalypse from. The book of Revelation, the Greek word is apocalypse, means a revelation of something. So I think the best way to understand this, as we see in Psalm 98, is that the gospel is how God demonstrates. In the highest level, his just, righteous, fair character. There is no higher way that God has demonstrated his ultimate justice and righteousness than at the cross. You might say, well, the cross sounds to me more like mercy and love and salvation. Why are we talking about righteousness and justice here? Well, you know this, and we're going to talk about it a lot moving forward. Paul's going to say in chapter 3, verse 26, that at the cross, the revelation of his righteousness is that he is both just and the justifier. The cross was the one place where God could pour out his total justice, his total judgment, you might say, and also pour out total mercy and justification. That's the key to this verse. Let's put it this way. God is so perfectly righteous and just and fair that he must judge sin. You say, good, I need a God who's fair because a lot of unfair things have been done to me. The thing is he's so just and so fair that you don't stand a chance in that courtroom. The Bible says every idle word, every thought will be brought into judgment. Well, that's not fair. Oh, yes, it is. It's not fair if you're grading on a curve, but God is not doing that. He's ultimately righteous and just. So he must judge sin. But here's the deal. God loves us. God wants to pardon us. He wants to justify us, which means to declare us to be righteous. But here's the deal. We're not. So for God to say we're righteous when we're not would be unrighteous. He cannot do that. And Paul's going to spend many chapters explaining all this. We will come back to it. So how is he going to do that? Well, he must execute justice and righteousness because that's what he is. So he says, here's what we'll do. I will pour out my justice, my wrath, my righteousness on my son, Jesus Christ, who did not deserve any of it. He was a sacrifice so that my justice has been satisfied in pouring out death on somebody who did not deserve it. So now that that has been satisfied, I can justify other people. I can declare you to be righteous because the righteous one has already taken your penalty. Are you starting to get it? So now even though you are not righteous, I can declare you to be righteous because my righteousness has already been satisfied. This is complicated in a way. In another way, it's not. But this is the most incredible revelation of God's character. His pure, untainted justice. The world was crying out for justice, but we're already seeing, aren't we? Justice is a hard master. Living under the law is a hard thing because nobody escapes. We're used to mercy. And so when we see a generation that has committed itself to justice, we're shocked. But here's the deal. God's justice is infinitely more severe than that. So how can he declare his people that he loves to be righteous? I must take the penalty upon myself that way the penalty will have been paid which means now I can offer you pardon that's the glory of the gospel it's the revelation of God's character the world is obsessed with justice but it's imperfect and this is what's making everybody mad about cancel culture and everything else like well you're going after them but you're not going after them how how is that fair I say, you know what, you're right, let's go after them too. And then just kind of everyone goes around headhunting. And you can apply this however you want. The world cannot execute perfect justice because they're not perfectly just. It's always going to be biased. It's always going to be slanted in one direction. There's always going to be corrupt people that want to take advantage of these good instincts and use them for their own purposes. And they cannot show mercy if you commit yourself to justice. And the world is starting to get this. And as horrible as it is for us to watch, it's important. When the world says we're going to triple down on justice, there's no room for mercy. Because it wouldn't be fair for us to show them mercy, look at all the things they've done. You're starting to get it. How can God show mercy to me after everything I've done? If only there was somebody that could take that justice upon himself so that God would be free to offer mercy. And that's where Jesus Christ steps in. The perfect meeting of mercy and justice. Isn't this what everybody's been waiting for? Even if they don't know it's what they've been waiting for, I'm predicting that God is going to use this subject that we're talking about now to work out an incredible revival among this generation. I really believe that. Because people are going to get a mouthful of this. And it's going to break their hearts and they're going to say, isn't there anything else out there? But they're going to know in their heart we can't compromise on justice. We can't compromise on what's right. And the Lord's like, you know what? You're right. You can't. And I didn't. But because I'm so perfectly righteous and perfectly just, I am just, but I'm also the justifier. This is why you can't be ashamed, especially against people that want to talk about justice. And a few generations ago, where's the love, man? Where's the peace? That was our thing, too. And there's a whole generation of people that found the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now there's a new generation prepped up to find the justice of God. Because in the gospel, the righteousness, the justice of God is perfectly revealed. The Lord can handle any generation that comes at Him. Don't you know that? Doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter if you're worshiping bugs in the desert or if you're in the United States of America and you believe in nothing except fairness. God's ready to receive you. Because the gospel is for all who believe. Mercy that does not compromise on justice. That's the cross. That's why it is the great revelation of God's righteousness. Which is why we can say that the revelation of God's justice is actually salvation for us. That's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? I don't want God to come in judgment. But that's exactly what he did at the cross. You deserve to die for what you've done. Yes, I do. But guess what? There's somebody else who died for me, and his name is Jesus Christ. Got a little fired up there. Give me a minute to recover from that. (laughs) For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Moving on, from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You can see there, the older translations had the just shall live by faith. But they they wanted to translate it righteous here in the ESV because they want to make sure you know in verse 17 it's the same word. Righteousness and righteous. But they also are very closely related to justice, as I said, to kaiosune. Now, the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. How? From faith for faith, the ESV has it. Which is actually a pretty good translation. It's ek pisteos, eis piston. Ek means out of. And pisteos means faith. So out of faith, and ace typically means into, pistis, which means faith. So it's revealed from heaven, out of faith, into faith. Starting with faith, ending with faith. Your starting point is faith. We're coming out of this faith, and we're going into more faith. Just in case you thought there was something else you needed to do. Now, there is something to to be noted here, and I, I wish I could talk about it some more. Maybe we will another time. This could not just be, like I said, a simple way of being like, faith all the way. I think it's at least that, right? From faith, for faith. Out of faith, into faith. Or there could be something more to this. Because I'm going to go ahead and stick up for the English language here for a little bit. A lot of guys that talk about Greek, they like to say things like, English is such a simple language. It doesn't have the same nuance that Greek does. You know, we've got to try to use love five different ways. And they've got five words for love. Hey, English is, is not a bad language either because we've got two words. One is called faith and one is called faithfulness. Greek only has one word for that. And so we're left to look at words like this. Is it faith or faithfulness? Because there was no difference in the Greek language. It depended on context, like the English language depends on context, right? I just want to stick up for my own language for a little bit there. It always drove me crazy. It can also carry the nuance of faithfulness. So anytime you come across the word faith in the Bible, in Greek, you've got to ask yourself, is this specifically talking about the act of belief? Or is this talking about a faithful response to that belief? You can see how they're connected, right? We even in Old English talk about keeping faith with someone. Not so much about believing as much as continuing in faithfulness to them. So what you could read here is out of faith into faith or out of faithfulness into faithfulness out of the faithfulness of Christ to die upon the cross for us, into our faithfulness to him, which will culminate at the end. Or, one of them means faith, or one of them means faithfulness. There's just a big nuance to consider here. Paul, even when the words he uses in Greek, never talks about faith apart from an obedient response to the Lord. That's something that i will preach another time. It could be saying that the source of the gospel is Christ's faithfulness, and the goal is our obedient response of faith. I think you could do what's called taking it in a plenary sense here, which means Paul using a word that can be translated two similar but different ways probably intended us for us to take both senses, right? To get both out of this. Out of faith, into faith. But what kind of faith? A faithful faith. Not just a nominal, yes, I'm a Christian, it's on my Facebook page, belief. Although I do think in the context of Romans, especially the New Testament, faith in terms of belief, is probably the best way to understand that here. Everything in the Christian life is through faith. When Jesus would heal people, he'd say, according to your faith, may it be done to you. Isn't that something to consider? Well, I asked the Lord to heal me, and, and he didn't. Well, Jesus often told people, according to your faith, may it be done to you. The Christian life comes out of faith. It begins with, do you believe? And it goes into more faith. you are never going to move past simple faith in Jesus Christ. And people who think they have moved past that are dangerous people. Yes, yes, that's entry-level stuff. But see, I've moved on to something else. You're never going to move past faith in Christ. It's always faith. In fact, Paul quotes from the Old Testament here to support what he's saying. Back in verse 2, he had said that the gospel was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. And here he gives us an example. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. When's the last time you read the book of Habakkuk? It's short, you could read it today. Paul thought it was important enough to base the entirety of the book of Romans off of a phrase from the book of Habakkuk. They're not minor prophets because they're unimportant. They're minor prophets because they're what? Short. Short. Now let's read that whole verse from Habakkuk chapter two verse four. It says, "Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by His faith." In the context here, Habakkuk comes to God in chapter one, and he says, "Lord, maybe you've ever felt this way. Lord, look around at our culture. It's so wicked." It's so evil. Even the temple, the churches are corrupted. And nobody worships you. When are you going to do something about this, Lord? Maybe you prayed that prayer this week. Well, the Lord comes back in chapter 1 and says, Don't worry, Habakkuk. I've got a plan. I'm raising up Babylon to come and destroy the city of Jerusalem. And Habakkuk says, Lord, they're worse than we are. How can you use them to judge us? The Lord says, because I'm the Lord and this is what I can do. And Habakkuk says, but I'm going I'm to believe you and I'm going to wait for you. And then in chapter 2, the Lord comes in and says, don't worry, Babylon's going to get theirs. And he talks about how they're, they're full of arrogance against God, especially Babylon and the Chaldeans. But he says, the righteous shall live by his faith. The one who will survive, so to speak, the one who will live through this judgment that is coming is the one who lives by faith. And this is a pretty free quotation from Paul. Both the Hebrew and the Greek versions of the Old Testament that we have both include a possessive pronoun there. Shall live by my faith or by his faith. And Paul just says, shall live by faith. And some people want to make a really big deal out of that. I know this probably doesn't matter to you, but it matters to me because I have to read these dumb things. They're like, "Uh, Paul didn't include this, so there must be an older version of the Bible we don't have. Therefore, we can't trust the version we do have. Therefore, we don't need the Bible at all. Listen, you're a Christian. You've quoted Scripture to people before without looking it up and getting it exactly right. I'm a pastor. I'll refer to other verses without getting the exact Wording right looks like Paul and Jesus and Peter did the same thing sometimes. You know what verse I'm talking about? There's a verse in Habakkuk says that we live by our faith. Well, actually, it says that it's the context. of it, it's like, you know, the point I'm trying to make. Sometimes I feel like it takes just a little imagination to figure out how to how to make these things work. Or maybe they've just lived in the seminary too long and they forget how real people talk. But anyway, <laughs> does not shake my faith even a little bit. It makes the point though, doesn't it? Just as the one who was worried about the coming judgment upon their own nation by Babylon was told to hold on to faith in the Lord, so we who are facing the coming judgment of all nations are told in Christ Jesus, the way that you're going to get through this is to hold on through faith. So it's not a different context. It's actually totally appropriate. If you want to be righteous before God, it can only be by faith. What do I got to do to be righteous? I realize I got some some bad stuff behind me. What do I got to do moving forward? You got to believe on Jesus Christ. But what works do I have to do? Jesus said the work to do is to believe on the Lord and the son whom he sent. Mm -hmm. That seems kind of (laughs) simple. This is exactly what the world needs. This is the moment they've all been waiting for. Although they don't know it. They needed God's righteousness to be given freely because you were never going to get there on your own. Even if from this moment forward, for the rest of your life, you never sinned again. What about all the stuff you did before that? Well, I think that God will weigh them in the balance and say, so you don't want to play that game. Trust me, you don't want to play that game. We're seeing it happen all around us. I mean, we, we call it cancel culture, right? What about all the good things I did? But what about all these horrible things you did and said? That's what, that's, in a very small, graceless way, is what it's like when you stand before God. But look at all these nice things I did. He goes, but... Look at your thoughts. Look what you said to that person. Look at this horrible thing you did that you thought nobody knew about. I knew about it. Why do you want to play that game when God offers you salvation freely? We're like Naaman the Syrian. Remember Naaman? He was a leper, and he had leprosy, and he had been a great warrior and a great leader of his people. And his servant girl, who was an Israelite, said, you know, there's a prophet in Israel who could help you. His name is Elisha. And Naaman says, well, then I shall go to Elisha. I'm a warrior. I'm a thing-doer. I get things done. So he goes to the king, and the king's like, I, I, I can't heal you, man. And says, Elisha's like, just send him to me. He comes to Elisha and all his great warriors' entourage around him and riding up all proud. I want to speak to Elisha. And Elisha sends a servant to go and give him a message. Elisha didn't even come out of the house. Elisha says, Ed, hey, just give him this message. Hi, uh, Elisha says, if you want to be healed of your leprosy, go take a bath in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman gets mad because he wanted to be respected and honored. And he said, I thought the man of God would come and wave his hand over me, right? He wanted to see a show. He was used to shamans and witch doctors and things like that. Elisha's like, go take a bath seven times. I'd love to go tell you myself, but, you know, I'm really busy with a lot of stuff going on. I know you're an important man from Syria, but. And he storms off and he's not even going to do it. I'd rather live with leprosy than be insulted this way. But all of his servants come to him and said, if he asked you to do something hard, you would have done it. If he had said, go out and and slay 10,000 Philistines, you would have been like, it shall be done, my lord. He says, but it's a dirty, look at the Jordan, it's nasty and dirty, and I've got rivers at home. And they said, come on, man, just do it. He says, fine. So he does it, and he's healed of his leprosy. And he goes back with all kinds of gifts to Elisha, and Elisha sends out another message and says, no thanks. Teaching him a lesson about humility, wasn't he? And so many times we're like that. We look at the gospel and we scoff at it. Like we're a rich person who's been offered like a microwave corn dog or something like that. I'm not eating this. This is beneath me. But the Lord's like, listen, if I gave you something difficult, you couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, try me. Tell me what to do. All right. Go back and unthink all of those evil thoughts you ever thought. Oh, that's possible through transcendental meditation. Don't give me that. All right. And the world looks at it and they've got all their reasons, right? The, the gospel doesn't do enough to change the system. It's, it's not enough. Or the, the gospel is, is threatening our amazing culture that we've built. It boils down to desperate clinging to Jesus Christ because you've got nothing else. That's the gospel. It's like when Jacob had his hip ripped out of socket by the angel and he was clinging to him and said, I can't let you go until you bless me. That's the gospel. Well, I'm not some man who's been beaten down and and hip broken. Yeah, you are. In your sins, that's exactly who you are. And the next couple weeks in chapter one are going to be all about Paul demonstrating that you are helpless before God. So I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of a gospel that is like baby level. How about you do nothing and I give it to you for free? I'm not too proud to admit my flaws and admit my need for God. And neither should we all be. The world looks at that and says, that's just ridiculous. Or or how about this one? You're going to tell me what to think and how to believe? Yes. (laughs) Because the way you've been thinking and believing so far has not worked out for you. Knowing what we know about the gospel, that it is the intervening power of God at work to save us, regardless of your background, that it is the ultimate revelation of His righteous justice at the cross, that it's only available by faith, how can we be ashamed? You believe in Jesus? Well, I mean, yeah, I'm a Christian. You know. Well, what, tell me what you believe. Oh, yeah, you believe the Bible? We have exactly what the world needs. And we know it. And they fight against it. And we get intimidated. Oh, they don't like it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear the gospel from me. Yeah, Jesus told us that already. They hated me. They're going to hate you. He says, you think you're better than me? Well, of course not, Lord. Then don't expect any better than what I got. The opposition from the world should not cause us to flinch even a little bit. (gasps) They hate us. Yes, they do. They always hated you. It just wasn't polite to say it out loud. Don't let the world intimidate you into shame about the gospel or about God's word. Make sure, by the way, that it's the gospel and not your pet peeves. A lot of times people want to claim persecution for things that have nothing to do with Jesus. Peter talked about that. He said, if you suffer as a Christian, it is a noble thing. But if you suffer as a thief or a meddler or an evildoer, he says, then you deserve what you get. (laughs) A meddler, I like that one. He says, if you're going to be a busybody getting in everybody's business... And then they tell you to back off and they're mean and they're rude to you and you get punched in the face. Don't come back and say, I've been persecuted for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter's like, no, you were a jerk and you got what was coming to you. But when you know it's the gospel, stand strong. Don't let them move you. A little bit because the world's gonna shift and the world is gonna slide and today we've got these cultural friends and next year we're gonna have different cultural friends and then all the friends that we have now we're gonna move on and they're gonna demand that we move with them and we're gonna say no and then they're gonna be the angry ones maybe the one thing that will finally unite the right and left wings in America will be their hatred of the Church of Jesus Christ that would never happen oh yes it would it's happened everywhere Only the gospel remains. The world doesn't understand. They won't understand, don't you know? They won't understand until they see the light. And you are the tool that God wants to use to enlighten them. So you can't let them shake you. You can't let them shut you up. I am prepared to stand until the death with a smile on my face, believing that I am carrying the torch of salvation for all men knowing that if only one more Christian is encouraged to be brave, because of my example, it will have all been worth it. Don't you know that's what you have? The apostles handed the torch down to men like Timothy. And Timothy handed the torch down to men like Clement of Rome and Ignatius. And they handed the torch down to men like Athanasius. And they handed the torch down to those that followed, the Cappadocian fathers. All the way down to us. We're standing in that long tradition of those that have held on to the good news. As long as there are souls to win, you've got to carry on and believe that the honor that Christ will give you in heaven is going to so far outstrip whatever shame you endure here that you won't even blink when the world comes and threatens you.